Good evening, little masters, and welcome to episode 150 of the Prancing Pony Podcast, where we take little gear of war, for our hope is in secrecy, not in battle. Probably a good thing that we're not taking gear of war, because probably not a pretty sight when people hand us weapons. But at least Elrond <laughs> has furnished us with thick, warm clothes and spare food. Yep. So folks, go ahead and pull up a bench in the common room, and we'll be right there. I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm here with the Men of the West, who recently said to himself, what about a bit of rope? You'll want it if you haven't got it. <laughs> Alan Sisto. Well, I can't get it now, so I'll have to hope for the best. Well, at least you still have your cooking gear. Unless you <laughs> left it in the TARDIS with the time-traveling Alan who just showed up. Uh-huh. Hi, Alan. Well, today we're bringing you another new installment of The North Wing. Barlam and Butterbur had a room or two in the North Wing at the Prancing Pony Inn, made special for hobbits. Well, this is our place made special for some of our listeners to give us a chance to get to know them. Now, rooms at the North Wing are a little hard to come by these days, so only our patrons at the Elrond's Honorarium and Kirdan's Contribution tiers are eligible. So if you'd like to be one of the next patrons to join us, maybe early in Season 4, be sure to check out patreon.com slash prancingponypod. Please, please, please do. We've got a waiting yeah. list for the North Wing right now, but we'll get to all of them soon and we'll make room for more if necessary. Whatever it takes. Well then, why don't we go ahead and welcome tonight's guest to the North Wing, Daniel Dolanoff. Greetings. Good to have you with us, Daniel. It's wonderful to be with you as well. Great to talk to you, Daniel. Thank you very much for joining us. And I'll just go ahead and start by giving you an opportunity to tell us a bit about yourself. Where are you from? What do you do? What do your loved ones think of all this Tolkien stuff you're so into? That kind of thing. Absolutely. I'm sort of from all over the place. I uh, mm-hmm. kind of had the best place to be from. <laughs> that is, that's true. So let's see. I was born in Russia when I was five. I moved to Israel when I was 15. I moved to the States. Uh, started in New York and eventually ended up on the West Coast in uh, Portland, Oregon. Oh, wow. Okay. Yep. And so as far as what I do, I work in information security. Mm-hmm. That's the day job. And uh, mm-hmm. pretty much read Tolkien the, the rest of it, the, the rest of the time. <laughs> I, I know a little bit about that. A L- little bit about, <laughs> yeah, spending evenings reading Tolkien. Yeah. Yeah. As, as far as what people think about it, well, actually, when my girlfriend and I took a trip to Iceland a couple of years mm. ago, we ended mm. up listening to uh, The Lord of the Rings on, well, on Audible, but it's the, uh-huh. that one recording that we all know and love, as yeah. we're driving through Iceland and kind of being struck how the landscapes uh, yeah. really, really yeah. resonate with, uh, with how it looks. Uh, so, yeah, cool. I guess more than tolerated. More than tolerated. <laughs> oh, you know, more that, than tolerated, yes. That's that good. is something that most people would be very happy to, to, to settle for, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's not bad. That's a good place to be. Exactly, that is. Well, so is Iceland for that matter, but anyway. Yeah, no yes. So the question that we ask everybody who comes to the Prancing Pony, when and how did you first discover Tolkien's works? And then what was your experience like, and why do you keep coming back? So I first discovered Tolkien when I was 11. Hmm. There was this weekly visit from a mobile library was kind of a big van full of books, a driver and a librarian. And the kind librarian offered me The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so it was 1981, The Hobbit translated into Hebrew. And uh-huh. that was my first experience. And then within a year, I think the following year, I read The, the Lord of the Rings also in obviously in Hebrew translation. Mm-hmm. And so why do I come back to it? Well, it's a continuous process of discovery. And for me specifically, it was also a discovery of language. Yeah, there was a kind of a double element over here. So first of all, the process of moving from Hebrew to English, so mm-hmm. kind of 
introducing myself to English through Tolkien or okay. vice versa in, in a manner of speaking. And also because the Hebrew translation did not include any of the appendices. Mm. Oh, okay. Okay. It was very much a huge discovery for me when I yeah. when I stumbled upon them. Mm-hmm. When I was about 14 or 15, I mm-hmm. went to this English bookstore in Tel Aviv and I saw The Lord of the Rings and I grabbed it. It was this one one volume edition and right. kind of going through the pages, recognizing things. And then I come to the end and there's this chunk of pages. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, where did this come from? Yeah. Yes. So all of a sudden there was this realization that there was so much more material out there, mm. which huh. which kind of put a fire under my derriere and <laughs> sent me into a quest to be able to absorb it yeah. in English as well. Well, you know, and that's hard enough for native English speakers. I can't imagine how difficult that was, you know, for, for yeah. somebody coming to it from another language. Just because the the richness of the vocabulary and the fact that it uses so many archaic forms, uh, that must have been quite a challenge. You know what? This is actually the least of it. Oh, okay. Because hmm. you don't know words. There are dictionaries. That's true. Sure. The thing that was truly challenging was when I actually decided to, to start reading it in English. It was right before I was moving to the States, and I decided, well, why am I rereading it in Hebrew? Let me mm. read it in English. Mm-hmm. I, I, I read yeah. the appendices in English. Why not? Yeah. And when I literally closed the Hebrew book and opened the English one and started mid-paragraph, it was uh, just as they were going through wow. the old forest, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. I kind of read to the, to the end of the page, and as luck would have it, I did not even have to use the dictionary, which was wow. unusual. But yeah. I had cold sweat going down my back. Because whereas in Hebrew, I could smell the stuffy air, I could feel the sudden turf under my woolly hobbit feet, I I sensed it all in right. Hebrew, I felt nothing in English. Hmm. And there was this realization that in order for me to appreciate Tolkien in the original language, mm-hmm. I would need to develop a much closer emotional yeah. relationship with it. Yeah. Yeah. Than pure knowledge of words. A true fluency that's beyond academic. Yeah. Get yes. to that level where you're not having to translate in your head and you're really feeling the language as you're reading it. Exactly. Yeah. The level yeah. where you could write poetry in the in that language. Yeah. And and that would be the kind of closeness that you need. Yeah. Or at least appreciate it, where words where words evoke immediate emotional responses. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I'm really interested in what that was like for you just a- approaching Tolkien for the first time living in Israel, reading it in Hebrew and, you know, kind of finding it in a library. What kind of exposure did did you have to the name of Tolkien before that point? I mean, obviously, you know, uh, a world city, but because yeah. you, know, you said Tel Aviv. But he's right? also so only 11. Yeah. So Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm just curious, you know, an 11 year old boy in, in 1981, what, what kind of what kind of knowledge did you have of Tolkien? I mean, I think for us in the English speaking world, it was just it was kind of always there. But what was yeah. it like for you? None whatsoever. Hmm. I, had, I hadn't heard of him before I saw the book. Wow. Wow. I was even kind of looking at the name. I was wondering if it was Slavic because mm. it's mm-hmm. conceivable. It could conceivably be that. I, sure. I asked mm-hmm. my grandmother who was born in uh, 1912. I kind of assumed for some reason he had been translated into Russian, but no one heard of him, mm-hmm. of my parents or my grandmother. So he, he hadn't been translated into Russian until 82. And okay. there have been a number of translations and I finally found a proper one. Oh, good. I okay. can feel I can share. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good. New, I, n- nothing, nothing whatsoever. 
That's wow. interesting. I probably just came to it with just to come to it with nothing, you know, like yeah. it's just something it, I think it's hard for us, like I said, in the English speaking world to conceive of. And we'll especially now after 2001. Well, yeah, after but, all. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, but I uh, mean, had there yeah. been the movies, but yeah, it was even before it. Uh, I Shortly after I read him, uh, I, I forget when the movie was made, the, the Ralph Bakshi animated mm-hmm. movie for the. Uh, would that I have guess, been I think that was 78, I think it came out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, seventy-seven yeah. was the um, was, was the, the Rankin, Rankin and Bass Hobbit. Hobbit. Yeah, and I think seventy-eight was Bakshi's Lord yeah. of the Rings. Okay, so I guess uh, they were showing it again in Israel, or maybe I remember. Maybe it just came over there. The, for the notice, first time. yeah, because I remember seeing it, and maybe I saw the title before that, mm-hmm. or maybe they were showing it again in the early eighties, kind of sure. rewriting it. That was before they sure, of yeah, streaming. Well, yeah, right, right. <laughs> long before. So again, minimal exposure, and it, it was not like there were no 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 Frodo lives graffiti on uh, <laughs> right in my school or anything of that sort. Not referenced in every D and D book that you owned as a child. Seriously, like that. Yeah. and the D and D was not anything I was aware of before I moved to the states. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense too. Yeah, yeah. Well, Daniel, which is your favorite book in the Legendarium, and why? And then, if you have a favorite work outside of the Legendarium, which would that be? So. It's difficult, I would, but I would say my <laughs> yeah. favorite book, if we're looking at the books as they stand today, in the Legendarium, uh, it would be the, I guess, the Empire Strikes Back uh, of the Lord of the Rings, so the Two Towers. <laughs> the Two Towers, yes. Yeah. yeah. Well said. Okay. Yeah, it has one of my favorite scenes, uh-huh. a couple of my favorite scenes, and also the fact that kind of knowing that it's it's not over at the end of that yeah. book, so yeah. that's, that, sure, that was yeah. also part of it. Okay. Yep. And what was the second part? Um, do you have a favorite work of his that's not in the Legendarium? Uh, you know, uh, Smith of Wooten Major, Farmer Giles of Ham, uh, any of the other ones that aren't part of the Middle Earth story, mm. if you even have one. Not really. The only thing that I read of his outside of uh, of the Legendarium would be, well, kind of sort of would be The Adventures of Tom Bombadil. So okay. I, yeah. I enjoy it, but yeah. Okay. yeah. All right. Very cool. Well, I'll take the next one here. Uh, any Tolkien-related goals you'd like to share? Um, tracking down a special book for your collection, going to a moot, anything like that? Certainly going to a moot. Mm-hmm. I want, would love to see a lot of people like that or like me concentrated <laughs> in a single point in space over, over a period of time. Yeah. So I would love to experience that, absolutely. Are you thinking about going to Tolkien 2019 in a couple of months here, or is that uh, maybe a little too soon? That might be too soon. It, the, the thought crossed my mind, but it's right yeah. now it will be just stuff with work. Maybe uh, maybe Mythmoot next year, something like that. Exactly. Uh, yeah, if you can make it to Mythmoot next year, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully we'll be there. We're, we'll be there next time, yeah. That'll that, be That's awesome. our hope. Hey, Corey, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, even if, you know, even that's if we're true. not just there, as, just there, as I'll fans, probably just go, right? you know? Yeah. I agree. Well, now for a uh, lightning round of quick questions and quickish answers. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and start with, who is your favorite hobbit? Uh, Frodo. All right. Can't argue with that one. Favorite scene or moment? I heard you say something about Two Towers earlier. I'd love to know what that favorite moment is. Sure. So uh, the the one that kind of hit me was when Gandalf reappears. Mm, and yes. it was very powerful because when I read it for the first time, I had no idea yeah. who it was. I thought maybe it's Saruman, maybe it's somebody else. So the, the power of the encounter, the power of, of mm-hmm. realizing that he wasn't dead. Boy, on a first read, the first read through, that is a very, very potent moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, Balrog wings, actual or metaphorical? <laughs> I mean. It's my favorite uh, question to ask. Uh, see, I, it, it's a synecdoche at best. Uh, no, no wings. 
Okay, good. Then Very we can good. continue. Sean, you get to ask him another question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, favorite poem or song in the Legendarium? The one that made the biggest impression initially, the Lay of Gilgalad, mm, the, the yeah. Tom Reads. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Favorite Tolkien artist or individual work of art? Mm. You know, I would say Tolkien. Ah, that's a very yeah, good choice. His, his, I find that maybe not as fanciful, but somehow his illustrations hit me yeah. most powerfully when I look at them. Yeah. 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 Good Some answer. of the incredible works that were at the Bodland, that catalog of, of pieces. Maker of Middle Earth, great stuff. Yeah. Get a hold of that. I'll make sure to check it out. And frankly, based on your recommendation, I wasn't really aware of it, but I, I looked up uh, Letters from Father Christmas. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's so much fun. Absolutely. I just <laughs> kind of melted. Uh, it's enthralling. You fall in love with it, don't you? Yeah. 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 <laughs> you really do. Yes. Well, those are some great answers, Danny. We really appreciate it. And thank you for joining us here in the North Wing. For now, I think it's time for all of us to head back to the common room and join the rest of the listeners. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks again, Daniel. And hopefully we'll see you back at our next questions after nightfall, if not sooner. I would love to. And now, folks, we'll return you to the podcast in progress. Well, thank you very much, Alan. And now let's get back to the book, because we are all about the books here at the Prancing Pony Podcast. Yeah, we bring you other Tolkien stuff from time to time, but at heart, Alan and I are fans of Tolkien's books and books about Tolkien. That's what we love. Mm-hmm. And as you know, we read a lot of books in preparation for this show every week. Now, if you'd like to get your hands on a book that we've mentioned, you're going to want to check out the official library page of our website, theprancingponypodcast.com. Now, there we have links to every book we've mentioned on the show. And there's a lot of other good stuff on our website, too. Show notes and book links specific to each episode, outtakes, Prancing Pony ponderings, and a few other little extras. You'll even find a link to our new online storefront at teespring.com stores PPP, where you can find shirts, mugs, stickers, and other great Prancing Pony podcast gear. So please check that out. And now let's join Bob Hope and Bing Crosby on the road to Holland. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well done. Well, you know, I was trying to think of a, of a good song that we could sing with that, one of the road movie songs. But all I could think of is They Might Be Giants, We're on a Road Movie to Berlin, which is probably oh, not yeah. the right. Yeah. Yeah. So all I could think of is uh, Road to Nowhere. Oh, yeah. The Road to Nowhere. Another good yeah. choice. Yeah. Well, we're going to have you start out this particular reading with, uh, well, right after we left the last episode at the end of Bilbo's song. Right at the end of that poem, yep. Mm -hmm. It was a cold gray day near the end of December. The east wind was streaming through the bare branches of the trees and seething in the dark pines on the hills. Mm. Ragged clouds were hurrying overhead, dark and low. As the cheerless shadows of the early evening began to fall, the company made ready to set out. They were to start at dusk, for Elrond counseled them to journey under cover of night as often as they could, until they were far from Rivendell. You should fear the many eyes of the servants of Sauron, he said. I do not doubt that news of the discomfiture of the riders has already reached him, and he will be filled with wrath. Soon now his spies on foot and wing will be abroad in the northern lands. Even of the sky above you must beware as you go on your way. Well, that's a cheery thought. I mean, really. Okay, well then. Thanks a lot. Thanks for the reminder. Thanks for all the help. Thanks for trying to send some messages. Thanks for not knowing yeah. how we're going to get this done. Exactly. Thanks for <laughs> not even being able to help us with your counsel or for sending any, you know, we warriors We kid, Elrond. We know he did a lot. He did a lot. He did. But yeah, he does. 
He's he, he's just you don't want him to be a doctor because he's got terrible bedside manner. That's true. That is true. I can hear him now. Well, you know, you should fear the the cancer that's in you. <laughs> right. I I don't doubt that you're going to die within the yeah. next few weeks. Actually, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nothing we can do. I mean, yeah. thanks, Elron. Thank you so much. Thanks for a that lot. Reminder. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Soon now the infection will be abroad and other limbs. <laughs> Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. It's terrible. He's a happy guy. He's a really terrible happy thoughts. guy. He's been through a lot, man. He's seen he a lot. He has. He has seen a lot, man. He's seen enough to know he's seen he too much. <laughs> right. A cold gray day near the end of December. Can we can we be clear about what day this Not actually is? Not just any is? cold gray day, exactly. No. No, Go it ahead. is actually December 25th. Mm-hmm. So, now when Tolkien originally wrote this chapter, the company were leaving on November 24th, but he moved it forward saying too much takes place in winter. They should remain longer at Rivendell. And he goes on to point out one of the advantages in doing this. It gives scouts more time to discover that the Black Riders have gone back to Mordor. He then specifically says that Frodo should not start until, say, December 24th. Well, Christopher Tolkien then surmises that this was later changed to the 25th to fit the existing time structure. So it's the 25th. Right. But then was the 25th chosen as an accident or on purpose? Well, like many yes. of our fate and free will discussions, exactly. Yeah, I think the answer exactly. is a, a bit of both. Yes. Yeah. Hammond and Skull point out an interview that Tolkien gave in 1967, in which he said, As a matter of fact, December 25th occurred strictly by accident, and I left it in to show that this was not a Christian myth anyhow. It was a purely unimportant date, and I thought, well, there it is, just an accident. But in his nomenclature, Tolkien says the exact opposite. He says specifically that the dates of Quote, December 25th, setting out, and March 25th, accomplishment of quest, were intentionally chosen by me. End quote. In other words, go not to the professor for answers, for he will say both no and yes. Indeed. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about the significance of March 25th when we get to the accomplishment of quest, as Tolkien put it, in a few years' time. But it is a date of great significance in the Christian tradition, said to be both the day of creation, the final day of creation, and also the day of the conception of Christ. Uh, The Feast of the Annunciation is on that day. So it's no wonder that Tolkien found a way to make it one of the most significant dates in Middle-earth, by accident or on purpose. We'll dig in more when the time comes. Well, hang on there, my friend. I don't think we can make them wait that long. That is Actually, folks, stick around. We're going to give you a little bit more on this in Barliman's bag in this episode, mainly because one of you asked us. Fair enough. I think we can do that. Just a little bit, though. Yeah, just a tiny bit. Just a smidge. Yeah. A teaser. So Elrond's advice, like we said, you know, travel at night. We certainly don't want anybody tying you back to Rivendell and coming to here to us, you know. <laughs> it's kind of, right. don't let them trace you back here. Well, and, and I mean, again, they, they know that they're in that area because exactly, they know that's where yeah. the ring was last seen. Yeah. They know that's I was where being the facetious. Fell, so. I was being yeah. entirely facetious, of course. It's not like they don't know the general area that Rivendell is. This isn't Gondolin, you know. Right, that's true, yeah. But right. yeah, he, he knows that they're watching that area. And so get out of here mm-hmm. at, at night and stay traveling at night mm-hmm. so that maybe, maybe if you're lucky, they won't know that you're on the road and what direction right. you've headed. Mm-hmm. And and we get again, you know, we talked about this a little bit last episode, the idea that this quest is going to be one on, on mm-hmm. stealth. It's not going to be- Stealth and secrecy, yeah. It's not going to be force, you know. Absolutely. So don't bother doing what somebody's about to do, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. <laughs> Bormir? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'm going to go ahead and read the next little bit then. The company took little gear of war. For their hope was in secrecy, not in battle. 
Aragorn had Anduril, but no other weapon, and he went forth clad only in rusty green and brown as a ranger of the wilderness. Boromir had a long sword, in fashion like Anduril, but of less lineage, and he bore also a shield and his warhorn. Loud and clear it sounds in the valleys of the hills, he said, and then let all the foes of Gondor flee. Putting it to his lips, he blew a blast, and the echoes leapt from rock to rock, and all that heard that voice in Rivendell sprang to their feet. Slow should you be to wind that horn again, Boromir, said Elrond, until you stand once more on the borders of your land, and dire need is on you. Maybe, said Boromir, but always I have let my horn cry at setting forth, and though thereafter we may walk in the shadows, I will not go forth as a thief in the night. Gimli the dwarf alone wore openly a short shirt of steel rings, for dwarves make light of burdens, and in his belt was a broad-bladed axe. Legolas had a bow and a quiver, and at his belt a long white knife. The younger hobbits wore the swords that they had taken from the barrow, but Frodo took only Sting, and his mailcoat, as Bilbo wished, remained hidden. Gandalf bore his staff, but girt at his side was the elven sword Glamdring, the mate of Orchrist, that lay now upon the breast of Thorin under the lonely mountain. Taking you right back to Hobbit, hmm? Mm-hmm. That was a nice little addition there, reminding right us of- Right back to it. Glamdring and Orchrist. People have asked us whether Gandalf had Glamdring the whole time, or did he did he just oh. take it with him from Rivendell? We don't know. There's no, there's no yeah, way at right. all to know. No, there is no way to know. It's not That's mentioned that he question. had it in his previous journeys, but he, I, I don't see Gandalf leaving his sword at Rivendell. I mean, Aragorn would, but Gandalf wouldn't. True, true. Aragorn would be armed with some other weapons, but not. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, not with the Shards of Narsal. Right. But speaking of other weapons, he doesn't have any now, does he? I mean, he's some ranger, right? Where's his bow and arrow? I know, right? I guess it's with Gandalf's spellbook. I guess. <laughs> True. <laughs> it's like, not that kind of ranger. Not that, not kind, of that wizard, kind of not ranger, that kind of ranger, right? <laughs> Interesting that he's wearing, where is it? Rusty, Rusty green, and brown. brown. Yeah. As a ranger of the wilderness. You know, even though everybody in the party knows his heritage, mm-hmm. he's not, yeah, not riding out. Now. He's not riding out in full... Uh, in full Sorry. regalia? That's the word I'm looking for. He's not riding out in full regalia just yet. He's not like... In panoply of ancient kings? Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Chained rings and all that stuff. He's not. He's right. not... Uh, no. He's not going out there as the, as the king just yet. He's, he's still just the ranger. I think he knows he still has some mm-hmm. work to do. Kind of knows he hasn't earned it yet. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And Boromir. He's got a long sword like Anduril, but I'm um, not. <laughs> I mean... It's that still... says a lot. It does. That says does. a lot. That, I mean, that, that tells me that the, the Gondor, the present-day Gondor, emulates the, like, the style of the weapons that, you right. know, that they used to right. have when they had kings. But they're not as good. It's like a replica of Well, it's less weapons. lineage. I mean, certainly Narsal. You know, you're, you're going to be hard-pressed yeah. to find something that has the lineage of, oh, you For know, sure. Elendil's sword <laughs> that cut the ring off Sauron's finger. But the fact that it's similar tells me that it, you know, they, yeah. they yeah, still they make swords that, that look like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This far down, right? All but you're right. Oh, yeah, you're right. Narsil is not just any old sword, so. No, that's true. I mean, that, that's like, you know, a Vorpal sword plus two right there. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. And then blowing the horn, man. I know. Well, I, I, you know, I wanted to point this out. Aragorn just has Anduril. Boromir has the long sword, but also a shield. So oh, he's a sword true. and board yeah. guy. You know, he's, he's actually, true. you know, a little more traditional warrior. But then, like you said, he's got the war horn, which he goes and promptly blows. What was he thinking? And you can see 
it, you can almost just see everybody going like, no, don't, don't, don't. Cringing. Cringing. Yeah. What and are he you does doing? It. Well, he's valiant. It's a brave thing yeah. to do, isn't it? Yeah, you're right. This is you're a guy right. who doesn't, he says, I'm, I will not go forth as a thief in the night. I always do this. If I'm going out there, if I'm, if I'm marching, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to announce myself. It reminds me actually of a couple of other brief mistakes that, that other warriors have made in Tolkien. I want to hear where you're going with this because I've got well, a big one in my head. Turin. Yep. And, and then, which also reminds me of something totally not related to Middle Earth at all, which is, of course, the Battle of Maldon. Yep. And the homecoming of Beortnoth, Beorthelm's son. Yep. Uh, this is that same sort of nonsense chivalry. You know, this isn't, you don't need to do this because you're trying to alert your foes that you're coming after them. You don't need to do that. That's true. And, you know, in the Battle of Maldon, of course, uh, the, the, the Anglo-Saxon <laughs> king, you know, let the Vikings come over. Right. Because I want a <laughs> fair fight. That was a I fair a, fight. I want a fair right. open fight, just like Turin, you know, let's. Right. Let's build, build that build bridge. Build yeah. it nice and wide so we can get armies across. Right. And yeah, just mistakes. Yeah. Now, in this case, this doesn't lead to anything, unlike those two other very, very poor no, decisions. That is true. But it's made from that the same true, place. I thought it? of it's Turin. Sort of a place of pride. I thought of Turin right away. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's that I'm a warrior. I'm, I'm big and strong. And hey, enemies, I'm coming after you. And it's it just, it comes from this place of pride, I think. It really does. And, and tradition, yeah. but pride mostly. And it's not the most pernicious pride in the world. No, but it no, is. It's, it's a valuable. It is like you pride, said. It's kind of meaningless. Say. It's like meaningless chivalry. Yeah. It's yeah. like why? Why do you need to do this? There's no point to this. There's no right. No useful purpose. It serves no benefit. It serves no useful purpose, and could potentially and it could risk. Right. Could it actually could be very risk. damaging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If there are spies in the area. Yeah. That could hear. Oh, that sounds like a Gondorian horn. Why? So, who must that be? Yeah. Right. I did find though that it was interesting. Elrond's advice about not blowing this until you're near the borders of your own land and dire need is upon you, uh, foreshadow much? <laughs> yeah, he may not foresee much, but he might foresee that, huh? Because, you know, I'm not sure, but isn't that the last time that he blows it until, well, until the last time he blows it? Well, Moria. He actually does blow it once in Moria. Oh, he does blow it in Moria. Okay. I yeah, wasn't sure. Actually, do, you, do you have that handy? Yep. It's it's when the Balrog is is. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, that's right. Okay. The dark figure streaming with fire raced towards them. The orcs yelled and poured over the stone gangways. Then Boromir raised his horn and blew. Okay. Okay, I'd forgotten about that. Now that was a moment where it could do some, I don't mm -hmm. know if it does any good, but it certainly is open challenge. And it even well, says right. loud, the challenge rang and bellowed. Yes, exactly. But yeah, this. This is not the time for that. Yeah, no, it's no. not. And I got to wonder if, if his blowing it now is kind of, does that somehow, does Elrond suddenly get a flash of the future? It's like, mm. don't do that again until you have, yeah. <laughs> until you have yeah. to. <laughs> yeah. Really bad idea. Yeah. You're not going to blow that horn too many more times. You're going to be like, who on the third yeah, time? I was going to say, who on? You get three times, <laughs> third time you're toast. Yeah. So we get Gimli with the open, you know, open Only shirt. Only openly of wearing armor, huh? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. For dwarves make light of burdens. You know, he's, he's teasing the burden. <laughs> he's like giving the burden, making jokes at the burden's expense. No. Yeah. It's not a big deal to him is the point. In his belt, the big broad-bladed axe. Legolas, of course, his bow and quiver and a long white knife. Mm -hmm. Mary, Pippin, and Sam have their swords, but Frodo yes. has sting and then his coat is hidden. Yep. And then like we mentioned uh, right as we finished up the passage, the idea of, of glamdring and the reminder of Orcrist. That was a great little Orcrist still piece. on the breast of Thorn. Mm -hmm. I love that. 
So just an interesting list of what they're all carrying helps us to kind of understand a little bit, uh, you know, how they're armed and and armored in the case of Gimli, really, and, and Frodo, but secretly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, Elrond gives them other stuff. He gives them thick, warm clothes. He gives them jackets, cloaks, food, all that sort of stuff. And then you get uh, you get Bill. We actually get him named now. He's the finally named. Has a name. Yeah. I love Bill, that. Bill, as Sam called him, yep. As yeah. Him. Oh, and Sam the horse whisperer right there. <laughs> yeah. Love it. I love that. But boy, that last little line that we're not reading, uh, that he's the only member of the company that didn't seem depressed. <laughs> that's that's really telling. I mean, it's it it's is. a little bit it's a little bit light, kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also really telling about just they're doing this and they know they have to do this and they're certainly willing to do it, but they're not happy about it. No, they don't want yeah. It's not something and they're looking it, forward to. And I don't know if it's entirely just, you know, I don't know if hopelessness is the right word. They're not quite hopeless. But no, I don't think they're there yet, but they're kind of, uh, I don't know, dreading the quest a little bit, but I don't know if it's just that anyway. I think it's also, you know, they're leaving Rivendell. Yeah. Rivendell's a, a beautiful place. It's a happy place. Yes, it is. And uh, even if you were going to some other pretty good place, I mean, Rivendell's a hard place to leave. And speaking of leaving, they've got some farewells to make, and that's where I'm going to let you pick up. Okay. Their farewells had been said in the great hall by the fire, and they were only waiting now for Gandalf who had not yet come out of the house. A gleam of firelight came from the open doors, and soft lights were glowing in many windows. Bilbo, huddled in a cloak, stood silent on the doorstep beside Frodo. Aragorn sat with his head bowed to his knees. Only Elrond knew fully what this hour meant to him. Hmm. The others could be seen as gray shapes in the darkness. Sam was standing by the pony, sucking his teeth and staring moodily into the gloom where the river roared stonily below. His desire for adventure was at its lowest ebb. Mm. Bill, my lad, he said, you oughtn't to have took up with us. You could have stayed here and at the best hay till the new grass comes. Mm. Bill swished his tail and said nothing. Well, yeah, he's not a talking horse. Being a pony and all. Being a pony, that's right. He's not Huan. No, he's not. Or at not. least he's, he's heard the story of Huan and he's saving yeah, he's, I'm not opening my mouth. Right. <laughs> I'm sticking around. So a couple of things. I noticed that, you know, we, we talked about the company, right? Earlier, he was the only member of the company not depressed. Note that it's not yet been called the Fellowship. I, I no, thought that interesting, was interesting. Yeah. I mean, despite the title of the book and the many times in the prologue that they talk about the Fellowship, nobody in the text calls it that until the very end of this book. When That's Aragorn a very good point. refers to it, yeah. That's just an interesting yeah. little observation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're waiting for Gandalf, which is different than waiting for Godot. Yes, he actually comes. <laughs> yes, he does show up. That's right. Bilbo in the cloak. Oh, Aragorn. Aragorn sitting with his head bowed. You know, the, the text tells us that only Elrond knew what this meant, but uh, we do. We, we know what <laughs> it means. Don't we? Yeah. We do. Yeah. yeah I mean, this is... This is the moment where he's going yeah. out on his, you know, well, it's not as bad as Baron's quest, I guess. Well, no, I suppose. Yeah. It's pretty bad. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's not bad, but it's, I mean, basically he's either going to lose and die. This is all or, or nothing. Or he's going to get what he wants and Arwen's going to die. Oh man, you're right. That's rough. Yeah. Either way, somebody loses. He knows that Elrond is in a hard spot. Right. Uh, he'll He'll lose, he'll lose his daughter or he'll. Yeah. Boy, this is this is tough. That's true. Yeah. Elrond will that's true. Elrond is gonna lose Arwen too if uh yeah. mm-hmm. if, he's if he successful. succeeds. Yeah. Bittersweet. Speaking of Arwen, do you note that she's not listed as being here? She's not there, that's true. 
you know? We don't actually see her there. No, we don't. I, mean, I guess we, there's a possibility in a, in a scene coming up, I think, where we get many that's others right, in Elrond's household. see, like, others of the household that are there. Yeah. But that's, that's it. That's the closest we get. And yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know. We, we certainly don't see an emotional farewell uh, with Arwen. I know that that's in the film, sort of that, that farewell. But uh, that's not here. Presumably, whatever moment they had, they had privately. Exactly. It's private. Even Elrond doesn't know. Yeah. What happens in Rivendell stays in Rivendell. Maybe it's best that Elrond doesn't know. Well, that's exactly yeah. what I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly no, what no. I'm thinking. <laughs> but no, it's it's a good point. Um, yeah. They... Has he had that conversation with Arwen yet? <laughs> I, I hope so. She's I mean, a few she thousand years old. 4,000 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Something uh, like that. And then Sam by Bill the Pony. I, I have to think that he's telling Bill kind of what he thinks about himself. Right. Oh, maybe absolutely. you shouldn't have done this. Maybe 100%. you could have stayed in Rivendell. Yeah. Maybe not eating the best hay. We're a bunch of fools. Yeah. You shouldn't be here. And yeah, the, the, the unspoken bit of that is, man, I shouldn't be here either. No, I'm way out of, I'm way out of my league here. What am yeah. I doing? Oh, yeah. goodness. What is it? Is his desire for adventure was at his its lowest, lowest ebb. ebb. Mm. I mean, this is a, I mean, this is a reluctant hero. You know, he doesn't. Yeah, it is. He doesn't want to be doing this, but he's, he's going to for Frodo, but, uh, of course he'd do anything for Frodo. He mm -hmm. absolutely would do anything for Frodo. Mm -hmm. And that's why I love this next passage that we're not going to read, but. Right. But the, the, the packing list, the, yeah. you know, does he have everything, you know, his, his cooking gear, his salt, right. his pipe weed. Right. It's the why that I love. I mean, he's. Oh yeah. He, yeah. I'm sure he's just naturally a boy scout. He always wants to be prepared, oh, yeah, yeah. but, but he, you know, he says he wants to. You know, he wants to be able to bring this stuff out when Frodo realizes he's forgotten it. You know, he just and have Frodo be like, whoa, you remembered this. That's yeah, so like, cool. You're awesome, Sam. You know, he just he yeah, wants the he lives he wants for his master's Frodo. He wants to yeah. be a hero to Frodo. He doesn't. Absolutely. He doesn't want to be a hero for Middle Earth or anything. He just wants to be no. a hero for Frodo. Much smaller scale. Very personal. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And then rope, of course, he realizes ah, somehow I forgot rope, you know, 10 meters of, I don't know, nylon rope three-eighths of an inch i don't know what, what's he needed for i don't know you just get, I don't know. it's just a good idea to have it but does he have a towel Ooh, well you know he is a he is a hoopy fruit man i mean yeah you sass that hoopy samwise gamgee there's a fruit who really knows where his towel is man <laughs> he is man yeah hoopy <laughs> fruit Oh man, got to get another Hitchhiker's Galaxy. Really, Hitchhiker's really Galaxy amazingly altogether guy or something like that. Is <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you That's know, if he has his towel, then he must have everything else. So it's not a big absolutely. deal to loan it to him. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Not to mention the the primary purpose of the towel, which is of course to make sure that you're not devoured by the ravenous bug bladder beast of trail, a beast so mind-bogglingly stupid it thinks that if you can't see it, it can't see it you. It can't see you. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Love that. Man, I missed that book. We could we could really do that that book. Wouldn't that be a hilarious like um, you know second project when this show's done? I like, that would be a lot of fun actually. <laughs> I don't think there's any really super deep themes. It would just be us laughing all the time. Yeah, yeah. So might not go over so well, but we'll have to see. <laughs> it would uh, just be us talking about the, why we think those th all the jokes are funny. Which yeah, this is hilarious. Oh, idea. here's a funny one. That would actually be a really bad podcast. Here, let me explain this. This is why this is funny. And now it's not funny anymore because you've just explained right. it. Yeah. Anyway. We are not hoopy fruits. No, not we're, we're far from or We would fruits. not be. I think we're pretty hoopy right now. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. People sass the hoopy fruitness here, you know? For sure. Yeah. All right. <laughs> now, Elrond's a hoopy fruit, and we're going to go ahead and get to him here. At that moment, Elrond came out with Gandalf, and he called the company to him. This is my last word, he said in a low voice. The ring bearer is setting out on the quest of Mount Doom. On him alone is any charge laid, neither to cast away the ring, nor to deliver it to any servant of the enemy, nor indeed to let any handle it, save members of the company and the council, and only then in gravest need. The others go with him as free companions, to help him on his way. You may tarry or come back, or turn aside into other paths as chance allows. The further you go, the less easy will it be to withdraw. Yet no oath or bond is laid on you to go further than you will. For you do not yet know the strength of your hearts, and you cannot foresee what each may meet upon the road. Faithless is he that says farewell when the road darkens, said Gimli. Maybe, said Elrond, but let him not vow to walk in the dark who has not seen the nightfall. Yet sworn word may strengthen quaking heart, said Gimli. Or break it, said Elrond. Look not too far ahead, but go now with good hearts. Farewell, and may the blessing of elves and men and all free folk go with you. May the stars shine upon your faces. Good, good luck, cried Bilbo, stuttering with the cold. I don't suppose you'll be able to keep a diary, Frodo, my lad, but I shall expect a full account when you get back. And don't be too long. Farewell. So he lays the charge on Frodo only. Yes. That's it. Everybody else free to do what they want to do. Fairly low bar. Don't throw yeah. the ring away or give it to one of the bad guys. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that really is. You're right. That's kind of a low At bar. At the very least. <laughs> Just don't, don't, don't screw it up, man. That's all. Even if you can't destroy it, you, don't throw it away. So, uh, so, Mr. Grishnok, you're saying you'll just take the ring to the volcano for me? Okay, sure. All right, here you go. Here you go. Thank you very well, much. Well, are you still a servant story. of the enemy? No? Okay. No? Okay, yeah. great. Here you go. And, but the others can do whatever they want. I mean, like, Sam could say, you know what? Never mind, I'm not going. And he could stay here. It wouldn't be yeah. a problem. Again, free will, such an important part of this, isn't it? Huge, huge. They, they, they have to be allowed to make their choice, and they have to be... Mm -hmm. Have to be allowed to change their minds, basically. Yeah, it has to be their choice. That's right, and it's not irrevocable, with the exception of Frodo, right. who does have an obligation now to not throw it away or give it to to one of the bad guys. Mm -hmm. I love Elrond's observation that the longer they're on this road together, the harder it's going to be to change your path. Oh yeah, it's really a recognition of reality. I don't think he's like foreseeing anything. He's just saying, look, the the further you go down this road, the harder it's going to be to to do anything else. You're you're going to feel a bond, you're going to feel this tie and you're not going to mm -hmm. really feel free to turn around and leave or to, to change paths. Yeah, I think that's true. I think, and I think mm -hmm. anybody who's had some life experience would see the truth of that for sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And then this, I, you know, as we're talking about oaths or bonds, we get yeah. a really interesting exchange here, don't we? Between Gimli and Elrond. We do. It's the, the, the great proverb battle of Gimli and Elrond. It's sort of like a rap battle. But but not. <laughs> it's just I love yeah. it. It's this, you know, this back and forth on the value of oaths. Uh we had a listener talk about it to us, uh, Grant mm -hmm. in Minneapolis. He asked us to spend a little time on this. He he sees wisdom in both perspectives, Gimli's honor and Elrond's grim experience. So Grant wants to know which position we would subscribe to, and he also wonders 
why Elrond says a sworn word can break a heart. Sean, I'm going to let you start. Yeah, I've got some thoughts on this. I mean, I see Gimli coming at this from a Germanic warrior culture kind of perspective. Yeah. You know, before there were courts and contracts and all the modern institutions that we have to keep us honest with one another, oaths were an important way for people to keep faith with each other. Mm-hmm. And and that's kind of where Gimli is coming from. That's understandable. Yeah. I totally understand why Gimli feels like that sworn word may strengthen quaking heart. Right. But Elrond has seen what an oath can do to people. Yeah. Now, he's been around for a long time. We know he's been around for mm-hmm. thousands of years and he's learned. So that means he knows about things like the dead men of Dunharrow. He knows about Finrod, but also he knows about Maglor and Mithras. Uh, quite quite directly, yes. Quite directly, yeah. I mean, his knowledge of the damage done by Feanor's oath is not just historical. It's not just something he read in a book. It affected him directly. Yeah. There was the yeah. kinslaying at Sirion. Mm-hmm. But then there was also, after that, when he was fostered by Maglor. And I'm going to yeah. read a little bit from the Silmarillion here. It says, For Maglor took pity upon Elros and Elrond, and he cherished them, and love grew after between them, as little might be thought. But Maglor's heart was sick and weary with the burden of the dreadful oath. Mm, So Elrond saw basically his his foster father was just, you know, who had taken part in the slaying of everybody that he knew. Yeah. Yeah. So this was a person he was very close to, a person who he did learn to love despite the horrible history they had together. And he knew what that history had done to Maglor. So, yeah. Yeah. I do see the value of Gimli's position, and it's exactly the position I would expect Gimli to take. Oh, but yeah. having read the Silmarillion, I think I'm with Elrond <laughs> on this one. Yeah, what do you I think? think so. I agree. I mean, oaths are, are incredibly dangerous things in Middle-earth, as Elrond has found out the hard way. Mm-hmm. Gimli, perhaps not so much. I mean, he's still a relatively young dwarf. Yep. Uh, you know, I mean, yeah, he was born in exile, but by the time he was of age, you know, they've taken Erebor back. He was so young, he wasn't allowed to go on that journey. Glowen went instead. Mm-hmm. So, you know, being young, he hasn't seen the sorts of things that Elrond has seen. You know, I'm on team Elrond here. I think a little wisdom goes a long way. Just yeah. keep your word and people will trust your word with no need for oaths. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I also like that he doesn't really, he's not putting Gimli down. He doesn't say no. He says maybe, and you know, maybe that's true. But, you know, you shouldn't make a vow. It's just offering unless a different you know perspective. What you're, yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, he's just, he's, he's countering it without dismissing it. Or he's without, not saying you're wrong. Oh, you. Right, you, right. You, he's saying it's just you know, part of the picture. Foolish, yeah. inexperienced dwarf. You have no idea what you're talking about. It's not that. Right. It's just, well, don't, you know, don't yeah. be hasty, you know. Don't be hasty. Yes, you're right. Yeah. It's a great exchange, though. And it's one that mm-hmm. I don't think I really saw how much there is there until after reading this book several times. Right, right. Now, not only, you know, what they say, but also the words they use to say it is interesting, too, because, you know, I think you said just a moment ago, what did you call it? The great proverb battle. Yeah, the great proverb Uh, battle. They are speaking in proverbs here, aren't they? Mm -hmm. They are. And Hammond and Skull point out something interesting here. This is actually an observation that was originally made by uh, Catherine Crabb. And she says that Tolkien uses proverbs to build the sense of the familiar, but also to create a sense of the individuality of cultures. The mm. proverbs have mm-hmm. the effect, even for readers who do not recognize the references, of lending a solidity to the projection of Middle Earth. Oh, wow. It sounds a little bit like uh, Michael Drought's uh, stuff yeah, about textual ruins, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, very much. 
a culture that has its own folk wisdom, whether it is the same as ours or only parallel to it, is a culture that seems to make sense, to have coherence, to operate by rules of some kind. In short, to seem real. Wow. Yeah. Really, really well said. And I think it is these little, these, these proverbs that are one of the many things that Tolkien uses as a tool to enhance that inner consistency of reality that oh, Tolkien yeah. himself said is, you know, essential to fantasy. No doubt. No doubt at all. That's exactly what this accomplishes. Mm -hmm. And then before we move on, one last note, I wanted to comment just briefly on Elrond's blessing about may the stars shine upon your faces and how similar that is to Gildor's blessing in the woody end back in the yes. Shire. So again, it's that the individuality of cultures. This isn't a proverb, but this is a sort of a, a, a routine blessing. You know, it's a, This is a thing elves say. It's yeah. a thing that they say, right, exactly. Mm -hmm. It is the polite thing to say among elves. Yep. Uh, and I just wanted to point that out. But, but I do love Bilbo's farewell. It reminds me of what we talked about last week. You know, <laughs> I, I don't suppose you'll be able to keep a diary, but I'll expect a full account. Basically, write my book for me. <laughs> Right, yeah. I mean, Come back with lots of notes so I don't right. have to do as much. I don't want to do any work. <laughs> I mean, you know. <laughs> and there's there's the, well, I don't suppose you'll be able to keep a diary. That's kind of like, you know, when you're You are going to keep one, says, right? Well, I yeah. don't suppose you'll have time to call me. Yeah, you know? yeah. He's guilting him into it. You're right. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's but he's going to be a little done, busy, actually. Bilbo. Hopefully you'll yeah. understand. Yeah, try. <laughs> he will be very busy. That's true. Trying to do so many things, like not get eaten by Gollum or a spider, yeah. not succumbing to the ring. Or giving the ring to an orc. Yeah. Not being losing the, the ring next to dark an orc. lord. <laughs> yeah. Oh, goodness. All right. Well, let's go ahead and move on. I'm going to have you read the next little bit here. Okay. <clears throat> the part that may or may not include Arwen. Right. Uh, what is it? Lady not named in this passage. <laughs> That's right. Uh Many others of Elrond's household stood in the shadows and watched them go, bidding them farewell with soft voices. There was no laughter and no song or music. Mm. At last they turned away and faded silently into the dusk. They crossed the bridge and wound slowly up the long, steep paths that led out of the cloven vale of Rivendell, and they came at length to the high moor where the wind hissed through the heather. Then, with one glance at the last homely house twinkling below them, they strode away far into the night. Hmm. Oh, that's a moment. That is a very sad moment. A very sad, mm -hmm. silent goodbye. Yeah, it is. Not totally silent. They are, you know, the elves are saying farewell, but, you know, we don't get any dialogue here. No. Well, and we don't get the laughter, song, or music, which, yeah, that's really saying something here in Rivendell. You think about all the other times that people enter or leave Rivendell. And this is, this is somber. This is heavy. They ain't tra la la lally no more. <laughs> no, there ain't no tra la lally today. There ain't no tra la la lally here, kid. There's some elf, you know, some, some naive elf who's off in the corner going, tra la la lally down in the, shh. he's getting elbowed yeah, in the shh, side. Like, shh, no, 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 not this time. Dear, not stop. this time. Not the Knock time. Knock it off, man. Not right now. Not appropriate. Read the room, dude. Come on. Come on. <laughs> yeah. So. And this, yeah. this solemn look back, you know, they, they, they depart the valley onto the high moor. And then this look back is, it's kind of heartbreaking, you know? It is. Yeah. Look back at, you know, we talked about this phrase, the last homely house. It's not used often in this book. It is no. used here and it is poignant use of that, of it that is. phrase. 
this is to remind them you are not going to be as comfortable as you've been for the last few months mm-hmm. for a very long time, if ever. Yeah. And if you think about some of the stuff we talked about, the last homely house east of the sea mm. and, and how Rivendell in this book represents all that lore and that wisdom and enlightenment. Yeah. They're, they're going into some rough and scary places. And they sure the comfort, are. They, they're not going to have that comfort. They're not going to have that support, that wisdom. Yeah. This is it, man. This is, they're, they're, go, they're going out there. Yeah. We're now on our own. It's just mm-hmm. the nine of us. Just the nine of us. We can make it if we try. Just the nine of us. You and you and you and Mary and and Gandalf and Aragorn. <laughs> All right. Uh, so they leave the, the road at the Ford. Hope they bought some four by fours at Ford of Bruin uh, and head into oh, the man. rough. Bar- <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> uh, I yeah, hope they- Ford of Bruin and. I, I, we, they're our new sponsor of the Brand's Clothing they, they Podcast. They better be our new sponsor because we're giving them so much business. <laughs> I know, seriously. Oh, if there really is a Ford of Bruin, they better be paying us, really. They uh, better be. <laughs> there's some like Bruin in Ohio that we don't know about. We're advertising <laughs> for free. <laughs> I, somebody, it's a missed opportunity if somebody hasn't. If there seriously, is a place if there's a town Bruin named Bruin and, and you've got yeah. some money, you need to build a Ford dealership. Start a Ford there. dealership. And because it you're be the Ford all, of Bruin. In. It could be all awesome. elf themed. You oh, can have like some Rivendell architecture in there. Oh, Dress your salespeople as elves. Stuff. <laughs> have them speak in that weird syntax that Elrond uses. Uh, and the sales manager could be Elrond. Yeah. Let me go yeah. speak with my manager. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, somebody's going to do that, I'm sure. But th- they end up in this rough, barren land. <laughs> And which again, that's why they needed the four by four. Already your credit is insufficient to get this loan. <laughs> oh, you do not know what interest rate you will receive. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So they end up in this rough country, uh, but Tolkien explains why. Well, by not going on the other side of the Misty Mountains, they're going to have more secrecy and more stealth here. That's really why yeah. uh, they're hoping that these spies, especially any airborne spies, uh, will miss them, simply put. Uh, we get a, a description of kind of the way they're marching with Gandalf in the front along with Aragorn, Legolas in behind, uh, because, of course, he's got the, uh, what do your elf eyes see? The so keen elf eyes. Right and now. if you are not hearing Howard Shore's music right now. Oh, I know. Come bah, on. Bah, 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 bah. Oh, that hero shot as they're all coming over the hill. Yeah. I, mean, I know they're I not know. actually going over a hill here yet. But. No, that, that is a little later, but it's certainly that. This is that moment, isn't it? Yep. And it's that moment in the music, and I know we talked about this way back when we talked about the music, where you hear the Shire theme transition into the Fellowship theme. Right. And it's just such a moment. And you realize it's not just the Hobbits now. It's all of them. And it is just a phenomenal turning point in the score. Yes. Yeah. And it's also almost literally the halfway point in the extended edition. Is it really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's super when cool. When that was back on DVDs before Blu-rays, that's when you actually had to pull it out and put it in the next DVD. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, good stuff. But that's where I'm going to pick up. The first part of their journey was hard and dreary, and Frodo remembered little of it, save the wind. For many sunless days, an icy blast came from the mountains in the east, and no garment seemed able to keep out its searching fingers. Though the company was well-clad, They seldom felt warm, either moving or at rest. They slept uneasily during the middle of the day 
in some hollow of the land or hidden under the tangled thorn bushes that grew in thickets in many places. In the late afternoon they were roused by the watch and took their chief meal, cold and cheerless as a rule, for they could seldom risk the lighting of a fire. In the evening they went on again, always as nearly southward as they could find a way. At first it seemed to the hobbits that although they walked and stumbled until they were weary, they were creeping forward like snails and getting nowhere. Each day the land looked much the same as it had the day before, yet steadily the mountains were drawing nearer. So we'll stop there for a little bit. Hard and dreary, icy blast for many sunless days. This isn't exactly going to be the tour that people want to take, is it? No, no, this is not, this is not a pleasant, pleasant journey. Is this, is this the first blast of that supernatural snow that we'll see in a couple of episodes later in this That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know that, that Saruman's aware of them yet. So. Yeah, I don't know. It it may not be. I might be reading too much into it. I was just curious. I just noticed that they're, you know, they're already getting this and I wondered. There's no, there's no talk of it seeming out of the ordinary. Yeah, that's like true. Like there is later. That's true. This just feels like an ordinary cold wind coming, you know, from the mountains. This is just December, Decembering. Yeah. This is now, well, yeah, and now actually probably very early they're January. Probably January now. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, they're certainly one week into it, they're going to be in January. This is awful. Oh, was cold it one stuff. weekend? No, if they're one weekend. It doesn't oh, say yeah, they're yeah. a weekend. Okay. Yeah. But we know it takes them two weeks to get to, to Holland, to get which to is Holland, where you're going to yeah. read next. So mm-hmm. halfway from Rivendell to Holland, they're going to be in January. Yeah. Um, but yeah. You know, either way, cold and cheerless meals, that can't make the hobbits happy. No. <laughs> they're already probably thinking, like, what did we get ourselves into? Seriously. Oh, guys, it's going to get worse. <laughs> yeah, a lot worse. That is true. Now, the mountains do start drawing nearer. Uh, if you look at the map, you'll see that the Misty Mountains run just a little bit to the southwest here. They have just a slight little mm-hmm. curve. And so as they're coming south, the, the mountains will be drawing a little bit nearer. And they find themselves in the foothills with these bleak hills and deep valleys and turbulent waters. And it's after mm-hmm. that that I'm going to have you pick up. It's kind of like the anti-Arcadia. You know, it's like yeah, it really waters, is, isn't it? Tangled thorn bushes and treacherous. Oh, swamps. this is no fun. Yeah, yeah. But then we get something kind of nice, mm-hmm. and that's where I'll pick up. Right. They had been a fortnight on the way when the weather changed. The wind suddenly fell and then veered round to the south. The swift flowing clouds lifted and melted away, and the sun came out pale and bright. There came a cold, clear dawn at the end of a long, stumbling night march. The travelers reached a low ridge crowned with ancient holly trees whose gray-green trunks seemed to have been built out of the very stone of the hills. Their dark leaves shone and their berries glowed red in the light of the rising sun. Mm. Away in the south, Frodo could see the dim shapes of lofty mountains that seemed now to stand across the path that the company was taking. At the left of this high range rose three peaks. The tallest and nearest stood up like a tooth tipped with snow. Its great, bare northern precipice was still largely in the shadow, but where the sunlight slanted upon it, it glowed red. Gandalf stood at Frodo's side and looked out under his hand. We have done well, he said. We have reached the borders of the country that men call Holland. Many elves lived here in happier days, when Eregion was its name. Five and forty leagues as the crow flies we have come, though many long miles further our feet have walked. Forty-five leagues. Yep. That's 135 miles, by the way. 
Oh, thank you for that. Miles yeah. apiece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But that's, of course, as the crow flies. So they've they've covered more than that because otherwise they're really only traveling ten miles a day. If it was if they had been able to travel in a straight line, right? That's not that's not great progress, really. Ten miles a day. Guess not. But I mean, considering the weather that they've been been dealing that's with, that's true. I mean, that's true. And they are on pathless roads. They're not. I mean, a pathless yeah. country. They're not on a road. Yeah. Yeah. Fifteen nights. The the tale of years says this is January eighth. Right. When this happens, so. They get to Holland. nights, suddenly, finally, some better weather. Mm-hmm. And better surroundings. Holland. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's a hole in holiday with Gimli. <laughs> Gimli makes your mountain name so light. I, the mountain is gray and ordinary. Gimli in that white dress with the, uh, <laughs> with the red sash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gimli. <laughs> doesn't no. wear it quite like Julie Andrews does. But, no, you know. he doesn't. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about Holland. Yes, I think also we known as Aragion. Mm-hmm. I just want to first of all say that the the Elvish name Aragion, Cinderin, actually does mean basically Holland. Ereg right. is Cinderin for Holly. Okay, and then it's got the regional ending Eon, uh, which mm-hmm. appears at the end of a lot of place names like Nanduhirion, which which we're going to mm-hmm. see. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it was named for the Holly that grows there, both in Elvish and in the common tongue. Right. I also want to bring in a little bit about Holly. From Walter and Graham Uh-oh. Judd's Flora of Middle Earth. You know, oh, yeah, that's a great a, source. Sure. Yeah. Anytime we get uh, some some plant life, I like to bring this one out because they always have some cool insights. Okay, do it. Here's what they had to say about holly. They said, holly is a tree associated with winter festivities. Well, right. Yeah, we, we do know that, of course. Its lustrous green leaves and bright red berries remind us of the joys of life continuing even in wintertime. And as you just said, Alan, this is January 8th. Yeah. And its beauty contributes to the wholesome air of Holland, a land that had not totally forgotten the elves that once dwelt there. Mm-hmm. So there's this idea that the holly itself is a symbol of life continuing on, even in darkness and cold and, and wintertime. Yeah. And I think that's really beautiful. It's the perfect image for the elves and for the um, the wholesomeness of, of Aragion in that area. And it's really a, a great symbol of hope when you think about mm-hmm. it that way. It's a reminder that life continues even through the, the dead of winter. Life finds a way. Finds a way. <laughs> we'll dress. I, I didn't have my Jeff Goldblum voice ready for that. I know. I didn't either. But yeah, if I needed to. Jeff Goldblum is a tough voice to, to do. But he, he it's is. more yeah. delivery than voice. Yeah. Yeah. Life finds a way. Life finds a way. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> so that's super cool. I like that. That is. That really is. I also love this moment that we didn't read here about Frodo throwing back his hood and letting the morning light fall on his face. It, it ties in with what you said about mm. hope. This is sort of this, you know, a little bit of a miniature restoration for Frodo. As for he, sure. Yeah. You know, is reminded of the power of a real sunrise. And I love that moment. It's, it's, it's a quiet one. It's a quick one, but I really enjoy it. That's a good catch. I like that. Yeah. Pippin's still not feeling very hopeful. No, Pippin's not feeling very hopeful because once again, Gandalf, I mean, my goodness. Pippin's Dude, just making seriously. conversation, Come on. right? Oh, we must have turned eastwards tonight. No, you idiot. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't say that, but he might as well. He tells There's lots of maps, maps, but I guess you never looked at them. like, Or Dude. even thought to look at them. Yeah, Pippin's right. Like, never well, thought yeah. to look at them. Sometimes. Dude, I don't. I don't remember come them. On, I don't man. remember everything. Harsh, man. Slack. You're not kidding brutal we should be counting these 
<laughs> we should. Someone did. I saw a blog post once where somebody counted the number of times Gandalf insulted Gandalf Pippin. Insulted Pippin. So, so once we get past Pippin's being berated once again, uh, yeah. we get we get Gimli. Gimli has no map. Gimli needs no map. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and pick yeah. up there. I need no map, said Gimli, who had come up with Legolas and was gazing out before him with a strange light in his deep eyes. There is the land where our fathers worked of old, and we have wrought the image of those mountains into many works of metal and of stone and into many songs and tales. They stand tall in our dreams. Baraz, Zirak, Shathur. Only once before have I seen them from afar in waking life. But I know them and their names, for under them lies Khazad-dûm, the Dwarodelf, that is now called the Black Pit, Moria in the Elvish tongue. Yonder stands Barazinbar, the Redhorn, cruel Carathras, and beyond him are Silvertine and Cloudyhead, Calebdil the White and Fenuithal the Grey, that we call Zirag-Zigil and Bundushathur. There the misty mountains divide, and between their arms lies the deep-shadowed valley which we cannot forget. Azanul-Bazar, the Dimril Dale, which the elves call Nanduhirion. It is for the Dimril Dale that we are making, said Gandalf. If we climb the pass that is called the Redhorn Gate, under the far side of Carotheris, we shall come down by the Dimril Stair into the deep vale of the dwarves. There lies the Miramir. And there the river Silverlode rises in its icy springs. Dark is the water of Kaladzaram, said Gimli, and cold are the springs of Kibilnala. My heart trembles at the thought that I may see them soon. May you have joy of the sight, my good dwarf. And I'm going to end it there, because if I have to read anything else, my voice is done for a week. Yeah, you. I think we need to get you a, a trophy for that one. That was. Tough. I think I should have gotten a nice voice for Gimli, like, Dark is the water of Keladzaram. I should just make him sound like a really nice guy. Yeah. Just quiet and soft. Not very dwarf-like at all. <laughs> yeah. the, the possibilities are great there, yeah. Yeah, but I'm not going to. I had to give him a dwarvish voice. My heart and... trembles at the thought that I might see them soon. <laughs> we could do like a As Mickey Mouse version. That's a bizarre, the Dimril Dale. <laughs> Oh, that would be hilarious. No, I'm I'm not going to go there. No. <laughs> I want to go back to the beginning of the passage you just read, back when you yeah. still had a voice. Yeah, and... which is gone now, yeah. <laughs> I know. Totally, Sean will be soloing totally the rest of this episode. Sean folks. will Sorry. be, yes. Alan has let it never be said that he does not sacrifice all for this podcast. <laughs> Alan's voice has left the building. <laughs> <laughs> right at the beginning, when Gimli says, I need no map, he had come up with Legolas. Yeah. Now, oh, I might be yeah. reading too much into this, but is this foreshadowing the friendship that's going to develop between them? Because they're Maybe. not friends yet, so there's really no, no reason for them to walk up together. But true, they're together. It's mentioned that they're together. And look at where we are. We're yeah. in Aragion. This is a place where elves and dwarves were once friends. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Is that is that symbolic? Is Tolkien intentional with that? Mm. I can't I think it was an accident. He didn't come up with Boromir. He didn't come right. up with Mary and Pippin. And Legolas doesn't say anything, so it's not like we get a 
a particularly elvish perspective right no. here. No. So the fact that he's, yeah, I, I think that the fact that he's with Legolas has to mean something else. Yeah. And yeah, not just think that he's bringing up the rear, like where Legolas is. Right. right. Yeah. I think this is, I think this is somehow foreshadowing that they're going to be friends. And this is a place where that has, where that's the history of have been place. friends. Yeah. Yeah. That is a really good catch, Sean. I'm glad you mentioned that. I think you're right. I think uh, this is a little bit of, hey, Gimli and Legolas are connected here. And, mm-hmm. and you know, we'll, we'll of course, yeah. see more of that. But the symbolism of it happening here in Holland, is, in, in a region, is particularly significant. Yeah. Yeah. Almost as interesting as this awesome bit of dwarvish word nerdery. Oh, man, you're not kidding. completely shredded your vocal cords. Boy, didn't it? <laughs> Ripped them apart. <laughs> Spat him out the other side. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, oh boy. What what names this are. Baraz, Zidak, and Shathur. Yeah. The Mountains of Moria. And these are all basically like the short names yeah. of the mountains that are properly called by the dwarves Barazinbar, which is the Red Horn or Karadras, mm-hmm. Zidak Zigil, the Silver Tine or Kalebdil the White, and Bundu Shathur, the Cloudy Head or Fenuathal the Gray. Right, right. These are literal translations of the Sindarin names. I, I did yeah. some word nerdery on this, and uh, big thanks to Hammond and Skull's Lord of the Rings Reader's Companion, Parma right. Eldalambaron number 17, and The Treason of Isengard. Okay. They break all this down, and I, I don't have to go into the details of all of it, but uh, okay. Baraz in Bar means red horn. The first part of that is Baraz, red or ruddy. Um, mm-hmm. The second part of that is uh, basically the dwarvish root Imbar, which means horn. Um, okay. which is exactly what Carothrus means. Right. Zirak Zigil means tine of silver or silver spike, literally. Right. Um, right. Originally, Tolkien's thought was that the Zirak part meant silver and the Zigil part meant spike. He actually reversed that later on to make Zigil oh, okay. silver and Zirak means spike. Yeah, Christopher okay. Tolkien pointed that out in Treason of Isengard. But mm-hmm. regardless of what order the elements are in, it's, it's a direct translation of Kelebdil, which is silver tine. Or silver right. spike, and then right. we get Bundu Shathur, which is head of cloud shadow. All we really know about that is that wow. the Bundu part basically means head. And okay. again, direct translation of Fenuadal, which means cloudy head. I love the first part of Fenuadal because we yeah. talked about that elvish root fauna yes, not we too did. long ago because it yeah. means cloud, but it also yeah. means in Sindarin it means cloud, but in Quenya it actually means raiment, as in the, right. the raiment of the Valar. Yeah. So really cool stuff there. And I think it's it's mm-hmm. one of the few times that we see uh, names for anything in Tolkien's world where you've got an, a name in Dwarvish, a name in Elvish, and a name in English, well, yes. common tongue, that are all direct translations of each other. Yeah. yeah and that's interesting. Right. And I wonder I wonder if Tolkien's saying something with that. I don't, I don't know. Uh, maybe hmm. he's just saying that these are such prominent places that everybody calls them the same thing. Or Could maybe be. it's something different, but uh, it's definitely interesting that they all have the same name. Well, you almost wonder, you know, because the elves and dwarves were were friends uh, when Moria was established, mm. maybe they came up with these names together. And that's that linguistically, very, they... they yeah. yeah. That's a very good explanation for it. Yeah, I like that, actually. That would certainly make sense. I think that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. And we get a couple of other places here, too. I don't have as much word nerdery on these other places, but Azanul right. Bazaar is the Dimrald Dale, or... Uh, the, the, the elves Nandu called it Nanduhirion. Right. There's Keled Zaram, the mirror mirror. Uh, Keled mm. Zaram is Kuzdul for glass pool. Okay. Uh, we yeah, get Kibble Nala, yeah. 
the silver load. Um, mm-hmm. Kibil means silver. We don't know exactly what Nala means, but it's probably load. Well, that makes sense, right? <laughs> Here's but something I interesting she said, at the risk yeah, of... Yeah, didn't you say Xerox Z- was silver? Or Ziggle, uh-huh, depending, because yeah. depending on when he switched it, right? Yeah, so there's two words that might mean silver in Dwarvish, but... Yeah, it gets even more confusing because Christopher Tolkien points out <laughs> that silver is evidently kibble in Kibble Nala. Uh, Christopher says kibble seems to have some connection with Quenya Teleb, which is Cinder and Keleb, meaning Keleb, silver. Kibble, okay. And that's okay. exactly what we see in Celebrant and Celebdil. Right. Um, going back to Christopher, he says, but all these people seem to have possessed various words for the precious metals, some referring huh. to the material and its properties, some to their color and other associations. Okay, okay. So that Zirak is probably another name for silver or for its gray color. Huh. So interesting that there would be different words, one for the color of the metal and one for the metal itself. Right. Whereas right. in you know in our language, we just call it silver. Right. Back to Nala, Christopher did say, my father noted that the meaning of Nala is not known. Tolkien himself. Professor Tolkien said he didn't know what Nala meant. Um, he said, if it corresponds <laughs> well, to Well, I guess we don't know what it means then. <laughs> right. I know. Well, if, if, if the guy who wrote it doesn't know. You know. Right. But yeah, Tolkien wrote, if it corresponds to Rant in Celebrant and Lode in Silverlode, it should mean path, course, river course, or bed. And Tolkien added later, it is probable that the dwarves actually found silver in the river. Oh, oh that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So there's your dwarvish word nerdery for the day. Well, Dwarvish Word Nerdery has proven that Kuzduel is a right jawcracker for sure. Yes, it is. It's also a right Sam. throat ripper, but that's just me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Goodness. Yeah, Sam. It cracks Sam's jaw. That's adorable. It rips Alan's <laughs> throat. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Uh, I'll take your jaw. I'll raise you one throat. Right. Well, Sean, I'm going to have you read this next little passage, and we'll, uh, we'll dig into that in a little bit. It's almost like you planned that out to give yourself a break. It almost is, actually. <laughs> All right. So I'm moving on to our last reading of the night, actually. Mm-hmm. And this is yeah, Gandalf yeah. speaking. We cannot look too far ahead. Let us be glad that the first stage is safely over. I think we will rest here, not only today, but tonight as well. There is a wholesome air about Holland. Much evil must befall the country before it wholly forgets the elves, if once they dwelt there. Hmm. That is true, said Legolas. But the elves of this land were of a race strange to us of the sylvan folk, and the trees and the grass do not now remember them. Only I hear the stones lament them. Deep they delved us, fair they wrought us, high they builded us, but they are gone. They are gone. They sought the havens long ago. And there's Legolas calling the Noldor strange elves. Yep. <laughs> I mean, just goes to show, you know? Yeah. Matter of perspective, Oops. apparently. Yep. Pot, kettle, kettle, pot. It just goes to show the perspective inherent in calling an elf strange. Mm-hmm. That's true. You know, and I think that really follows up a little bit on what we said when we clarified the whole strange elf thing. I mean, I remember we made a big deal of him being yeah. strange. And then, of course, we pointed out that all it really means is that he's he's different. He's, he's not from foreign. there. Yeah. Right. He's foreign. And that's yeah. really what he's saying here as well. These are not. These are not our elves. These are not Sylvan elves. These were Noldor. And right. uh, it, it's, they're very different. That's, and even, you know, only the stones remember them. 
at this the point. Con- and that's really that's really interesting because it, it, their connection to the land. Remember, elves are so connected to Arda. Right, right. Legolas, being a sylvan elf, would expect elves to be connected to the trees and the grass. He would expect the trees and the grass to remember them, and that's certainly what he would find in Mirkwood. Right, right. But the Noldor the are remembered by the stones. Yeah, they that delved. Makes great sense. They they wrought the stones. And they builded the stones, too. Mm-hmm. Hi, they builded us. We'll send them back for some grammar classes on it. <laughs> oh, man. I didn't even think about that. Not built. Yeah, exactly. And that's got to be an archaic form. Yeah, it is. I, do yeah. you think Tolkien made a mistake? No. <laughs> no. But, I mean, if my seven-year-old says, I built, look at what I builded with my Legos. Yeah. I mean, son, we got to talk. Yep. Yeah. No, this is just an archaic form of it. Maybe he's just being an elf, dude. I mean. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit about this whole idea about not looking too far ahead uh, before we before we start wrapping up. You know, this this whole idea of not really knowing what we're going to do next. Look, this the first stage is over. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, he goes on and talks about Holland itself. But this whole idea that we don't want to look any further. I was thinking about when the Fellowship leaves Lorien in a few chapters and Gandalf's no longer with them. Aragorn says to Celeborn, I believe, that beyond Lothlorien, I do not know what Gandalf intended to do. Indeed, I do not think that even he had any clear purpose. Mm-hmm. So it's not a surprise that here he's not really sure what's going to happen. Uh, he just doesn't Why do you have... think that is? Do you think he's just, I mean, I think there's two he's things. just taking it one day at a time or a few days he's at a time? He's taking it a day at a time. I think there's a little bit of this, like, we have to have some flexibility because we never know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But I do think there's an underlying sense that we're going to be seeing here build in the going over Carothers or going through Moria. You know, Gandalf has some very strong opinions on that. Yeah. And uh, different from the film. Gandalf and Aragorn have very different opinions than film versions. Right. And I think there's something there. I think that's what we're seeing a little bit is, uh, you know, to the end of the journey in the end, you know, where we must go down the silver load, we must do this. And then. You know, we may end up going down the Silver Road into the Secret Woods, but we may be doing that after going through Moria instead of going over Carothras. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a little bit of that, but mostly it's just taking it day by day. And do you, uh, so do having, you think he's just, you know, he's not thinking plans. too far ahead because he knows there are some decisions to make and he wants to, he doesn't yeah. want to dominate the fellowship to go a particular way. He wants to. Yeah. He wants to. Yeah, I think so. Have a conversation, get them on board with it. Or do you Maybe. think there's actually some risk in planning too far ahead? I think that's what it is. I think he knows that, look, we don't know what circumstances are in front of us. And mm-hmm. we have enough of a task dealing with what's here right now. So let's mm-hmm. do that. And as decisions approach, as these decision points come, we'll deal with them then. Don't and get too no attached to a particular course of action because exactly. we, we don't know what's going to happen before we get there. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good catch. Cannot look too far ahead. I know I have that tendency to do that. I, I build out a very long plan uh, with detailed, you know, if this, then that, if this, then that. And of course, by the time you get through the third or fourth step, it's already, you know, 17 degrees off, you know. And it really plan. messes with you. Some, if you're anything oh, like yeah. me, it really messes with you when that happens. And Absolutely, it does. Yeah. And you have as much of a problem dealing with the fact that things didn't go as planned as you do dealing with what didn't the go change. as planned. Right, you exactly. Know? Yeah. You not only have to solve the problem of, okay, something unexpected happened, but you also have to solve the problem of how I'm going to deal with the fact that my plan wasn't sufficient. Exactly. So, yeah. 
Well, folks, that may get us all the way to Holland and the ring goes south, but we are not done yet. We've got Bartleman's bag coming your way in just a minute, and even when that's done, the talk continues all night long at the Prancing Pony. That's right. We've always got lots of discussion happening in our social media spaces. At our Common Room on Facebook, you'll find comments, questions, corrections, and more on every episode, as well as updates from us throughout the week. Mm -hmm. Just look for the Prancing Pony podcast on Facebook and click the like and follow buttons. And now we have another Common Room on Reddit. You can find great discussions there at r slash prancingponypod. And as always, you can find us on Twitter and on Instagram with the handle at prancingponypod. Follow us wherever you might be. And if you like us, please share us on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, or anywhere else you can find Tolkien fans. And if you really want to let the world know your feelings about us, give us a review on iTunes. The more reviews we have, the more visible our podcast is, and that helps others find us and this amazing community of Tolkien fans we've built together. Absolutely. And if you'd like access to exclusive content like postscripts, quarterly specials, PPP swag, and more, check out patreon.com slash prancingponypod to find out how you can join the fellowship of the podcast. Now, I think it's time to see what old Barlaman has in the mailbag for us tonight. Sean? All right. Well, first up is the question I just could not wait four more years for. All right. Listener Ian in New Orleans asked us to talk about the significance of December 25th, Christmas, of mm -hmm. course, and March 25th, which, as you said earlier, is Annunciation, also known as Lady Day. Uh, okay. Ian also said that in Catholicism, it's traditional that Christ was conceived and died on the same day. So oh, wow. March 25th was also believed to be the traditional date of the original Good Friday. Okay. Um, so Ian's asking about these two dates, and he says, Surely Good Friday, for a Christian, is the greatest example of eucatastrophe ever, the perfect date to set for the fall of Sauron and the birth of a new age. Hmm. Ian goes on to say, Anyway, that's a long wind-up to a simple question, but can you guys discuss this a bit further on the podcast? Has anyone besides Tom Shippey ever examined this issue more at length and explained why Tolkien decided to insert these two markers in the timeline of Christian salvation into his story, as Shippey calls it, a kind of signature, a personal mark of piety? Hmm. Ian says, I haven't read the full letters yet, but does Tolkien ever discuss it in his letters or elsewhere? All right. Well, if you insist, Sean, we will start talking about this now. Just a little uh, bit. We'll, Just a We'll still have much... Just a little bit. Now, when Ian mentions Tom Shippey there, he's referring to a section of Author of the Century, and here's Shippey's words, not in Shippey's voice. No one any longer celebrates the 25th of March, and Tolkien's point is accordingly missed, as I think he intended. He inserted it only as a kind of signature, a personal mark of piety. Shippey then goes on to explain that in Old English tradition, March 25th was the date of the crucifixion, and the Annunciation, and the date of the fall of Adam and Eve. The, and these are his words, the Felix Culpa, whose disastrous effects the Annunciation and the Crucifixion were to annul or repair. He goes on to say, The main action of the Lord of the Rings takes place then in the mythic space between Christmas, Christ's birth, and the Crucifixion, Christ's death. Is this telling us something about Frodo? Are we meant to see him as a type of Christ? I do not think so. Frodo offers no promise of soul salvation. He releases no prisoners from hell. He does not rise from the dead. Frodo, in other words, has no supernatural dimension at all, but he and Sam do have a eucatastrophic one. Going even further back to Shippey's The Road to Middle-Earth, he touched on these two dates and their eucatastrophic resonance in that book as well. He said, In Anglo-Saxon belief, and in European popular tradition, both before and after that, 25th March is the date of the crucifixion, also of the Annunciation, nine months before Christmas. Makes sense. Mm, yeah, yeah. Also of the last day of creation. 
By mentioning the date, Tolkien was presenting his eucatastrophe as a forerunner or type of the greater one of Christian myth. It is possible to doubt whether this was a good idea. Almost no one notices the significance of 25th March or of the company setting out from Rivendell on 25th December. Tolkien did right, normally, to avoid such illusions, to keep, like the author of Beowulf, to a middle path between Ingeld and Christ, between the Bible and pagan myth. The care with which he maintained this position, highly artificial, though usually passed over without mention, is evident, with hindsight, on practically every page of The Lord of the Rings. Mm. So it sounds like there's going to be a lot there for us to discuss when we get there. For Mm -hmm. now, Ian, I can say that uh, I have looked in the letters for any possible commentary on the dates, and I have come up short. Yeah. But Tolkien did comment on it in that interview and in the nomenclature, which we mentioned earlier in this episode. I personally believe it was absolutely intentional by Tolkien. I I didn't personally know the significance of March 25th myself, mm-hmm. but obviously Tolkien certainly did. And, well, yeah, and I don't yeah. think he would have set that date without that in mind. No. Um, maybe he wanted to... I would go so far as to say I think he probably did want to avoid forcing that interpretation. He didn't want to well, sure. dominate the reader with that no. purpose. And that's probably why he was coy about it in that interview where he said no. But right. um, definitely uh, a lot of things point to yes. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't an accident. Yeah. Well, next up, although we haven't quite gotten to Sam's observation about the jawcracker that is the Kuzdul language, we have gotten a pretty big taste of it in this episode, more than oh, I yeah. would care to have done, actually. Uh, <laughs> and, and so it's the perfect time to bring in a question from one of our Reddit users, Kredrick Schur, who started asking some questions about the Dwarvish language after our conversation about the Black Speech during the Council of Elrond. My question is about where Dwarvish was in the aesthetic phonetic reckoning of Tolkien. Based, and this is a summary of what he says, based on the sounds of the rough tongue of the dwarves, Kredrick Schur says, I guess that it is between the Elvish languages and the Orcish in terms of how Tolkien felt about its aesthetic qualities. Kredrickshire observed that the languages of elves and dwarves had very different origins. Uh, And in chapter three of the Silmarillion, the Elvish discovery of language is described thus. Long they dwelt in their first home by the water under stars, and they walked the earth in wonder, and they began to make speech and to give names to all things that they perceived. Themselves they named the Quendi, signifying those that speak with voices. And in chapter 2 of the Silmarillion, we're told that Dwarvish language was created by Aule and taught to them. Now Iluvatar knew what was done, and in the very hour that Aule's work was complete, and he was pleased, and began to instruct the dwarves in the speech that he had devised for them, and then you know the rest of that story. Kredrick Shur mm-hmm. says, This indicates to me that if indeed the Dwarvish language is considered less beautiful by Tolkien, then it may have something to do with the idea that it was not evolved within them, as it seems Quenya was for the elves. Hmm. So, Sean, what say you, word nerd? Did Tolkien think Kuzdul was less beautiful? And if so, could it be attributed to being an external invention of Aule given to the dwarves? That's an interesting question. It is interesting, It is. And I cannot find anywhere where Tolkien said that he disliked the sound of Kuzdul. And I know that there are some Kuzdul fans out there who are going to raise their mattocks and come after me if I speculate that he didn't like it. (laughs) I do know that Kuzdul has some similarities to Hebrew in regards to its phonology and the way it forms words from triconsonantal roots. That's the Mm -hmm. roots made of three consonants, as the name implies. Um, And I know that Tolkien knew enough Hebrew to translate at least the book of Jonah and possibly the book of Job for Mm -hmm. the Jerusalem Bible in English. Right, right. 
But I don't have any record of, of how he felt about the language personally. You know, did he think of Hebrew as another Finnish or Welsh uh, language that he liked? Or was it right. another French for him? I don't really mm. know. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I tend to think that Tolkien's use of Hebrew as an inspiration for Kuzdul was meant to establish Kuzdul as completely foreign to the Elvish right. languages. Exactly. Hebrew is not related to Indo-European languages like English and Welsh and French. So mm. Tolkien could use it as an inspiration for the structure and the sound of Kuzdul and come up with something totally alien. Mm. And I think if I, ha if I had to guess, I think that was his goal. With the black speech, I think he was using sounds that he thought sounded ugly or unpleasant. With Kuzdul, I don't think he was going for unpleasant so much as he was just going for foreign or exotic. Okay. So as for Kriedrich Schur's idea that Tolkien might have been trying to make it sound less beautiful uh, because it wasn't their own invention, I'll admit I was kind of intrigued by this idea when I first read it on Reddit uh, because oh, it does well resonate yeah. with, I didn't even mean to do that, just, you know, every once in a while, just low-hanging fruit. But it does resonate with some things that Tolkien said in some of his essays like English and Welsh, but I've thought about it and that's not really where I land on it now. And I'll tell you why. So, yes, Kuzdul was invented by Aule for the dwarves. They didn't create it themselves. Right. But, I mean, let's face it. The dwarves are his creations. And yeah. it seems unlikely that anyone would have known them better than he did. Right. I'm sure that Aule, who was a consummate sub-creator, one of the Valar, mm -hmm. knew right. what he was doing. And he probably did his best to create as perfect a language for them, for their use, mm. as he could. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We do know the dwarves prized their language highly. Uh, Tolkien True. even says in an essay in The Peoples of Middle-Earth, and we know from Appendix F that they tended it and guarded it as a treasure of the past. And we know that they kept it secret. They didn't tend to yeah. teach it to people of other races. That, that no, indicates they that they felt like it was precious. And we know that they learned the tongues of other races, such as men, well enough. If they spoke the language that Aule made for them unpleasantly because it wasn't made by them, you'd think they would have even more unlovely sounds coming out of their mouth when they speak mm. Manish languages. Good point. And, and yet Gimli speaks pretty eloquently when he wants to in the common yeah. tongue. Yeah, as we've discovered in this episode, he, he waxes poetic even though he does so by including many dwarvish words in his speech. Yeah. So where do you land? It's an interesting idea, but I don't have any reason to believe that Tolkien really thought Kuzdul was an unpleasant language. Uh, or that he would say it had anything to do with it being given to the dwarves rather than created by them. In mm -hmm. fact, I think he'd probably say quite the opposite. I think he would probably say that the Kuzdul language is perfect for the dwarves. Yeah. Uh, you might say it's a hard, rough, and painful language for a hard, rough, and occasionally pain-causing people. Yeah. But it's got a beauty and a poetry to it, just like the dwarves themselves do. Mm. Well said, Sean. Thanks Thank for you. that. That was, yeah, and very insightful. Folks, that wraps it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony podcast, but please be sure to join us again next week when we discover that paying attention to a ranger is a good idea. Well, especially if that ranger is Aragorn. Indeed. Well, folks, we want to thank each of you listening, and we also want to give a very special thank you to our patrons at the Kierdance Contribution Tier. Demay in Alaska, James in Virginia, Tamson in Minnesota, Emily in Texas, Chad in Texas, Lance in New Jersey, Paul in Colorado, Jerry in Texas, Bruce in California, and Mario in Utah. Thank you all so very much. Make sure you don't miss a single episode of the Prancing Pony podcast. Subscribe to the show through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And one last thing as always, 
Don't forget to send your questions, comments, and, well, most of all, your wholesome Holland air fresheners to Parliament at the prancingponypodcast.com. It would be shaped like a holly leaf and would dangle from your ear to your ear. And smell like Christmas. Yeah. Yes, it would. <laughs> well, Barlaman's not always or not ever punctual with the mail, but True. we'll get back to you as soon as we can. And your question or comment may be featured on an upcoming show. Well, this has been far too short a time to spend among such excellent and admirable listeners. But until next time. Farewell, friends. <laughs>